So Leanne, we use the term bad Bridget all the time. But can you explain to the listeners what exactly you mean or we mean by bad Bridget? It was your brainwave after all. Well, Elaine. Um, yeah, the Arts and Humanities Research Council funded our research project from 2015 to 2019 that looked at the realities of life for Irish women considered criminal or deviant in North America from 1838 to the end of World War I in 1918. So Irish migrants who ended up in court or prisoner under arrest and there are they are our bad Bridgets. Um and Bad Bridget was a Bridget rather was a very common Irish name at the time. Um we we kind of came up with the, the title where we've been sort of calling it Bad Bridget. And when we decided that well maybe we'll make this the permanent title of the project, I can still see us sitting in an office in Korean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After a long day of brainstorming. <laughs> And we sort of thought, yeah, let's call it Bad Bridget. And then we thought, maybe we'll just check um, that this is nobody's porn name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we Googled and it wasn't. And we thought we'll go with Bad Bridget. And it was only later when we thought, you know, we were on a university computer with probably all sorts of firewalls that we, yeah. we never found out. But it's probably best that we didn't. Know. Yeah. But but I think, but when we Google Bad Bridget, at least we're, we're <laughs> what comes up. Um, so on that note, the amazingly talented um, Siobhan McSweeney, a.k.a. Sister Michael, for those listeners who are Derry Girls fans, is going to get us started. Men, women and children left everything they had known in Ireland and emigrated across the Atlantic to North America in search of the American dream. More than five and a half million of them migrated between 1838 and 1918. We know that women became nuns, domestic servants, teachers, We know that men built American cities and entered politics. Irish America is awash with stories of successful Irish migrants. But what about those who didn't find the American dream? What about the struggles along the way? What about the thousands of Irish who ended up in police stations, courts and prisons suspected of criminal or deviant behaviour? Where do Irish women fit into the story? is the Bad Bridget podcast with Elaine Farrell and Leanne McCormack, the podcast that goes behind the traditional emigrant success story to tell the hidden tales of women that history has chosen to forget. It shines a light on stories of crime and poverty, but also of survival, resistance and coping against the odds. These are the stories that help us understand the complex experience of migration, both in the past and today. There are some really sad stories, but there's also some funny stories. And you're going to hear about our favourite bad bridges along the way. So in today's podcast, we wanted to set the scene a little for the episodes that followed um, to talk about the numbers of criminal Irish women in Boston, New York and Toronto, which are the three cities we look at as part of the project. And also to talk a bit about the living conditions of these women at home and abroad and how this may have led to their actions and their arrests. Because the high numbers of Irish women who were in prison or in reformatory are arrested. Um, this really came as a surprise to us. And, and I can remember you know, going, being in Boston, being in the archive and just sending these totally panicked emails back to Julianne, being like, what are we going to do? There are thousands. I have a month here. How am I going to get all of them? 
And let me just try to give the listeners a sense of that. So, so buckle up for, for a bliss of statistics um, that's about to come. So, so in Boston, between 1882 and 1915, we have just over 12,500 women admitted to the House of Correction. Of those, 35% are Irish women. The total population in Boston at this time is 17%. So if the prison population mirrored the general population, you'd expect 17% to be Irish. Yep. But you have 35%, so that's double what you'd expect. Exactly. And it's the same story in, in New York prison populations. Um, but on top of Irish women being completely overrepresented there, there were also some really interesting things when I did a gender comparison. So in the early 1860s, Irish imprisoned men made up about 50% of the prison population. So essentially every second male in the prison is Irish born. Yes. But the Irish made up only 25% of the population in New York at the most over, over this period. So it's double again what you'd expect. But this is where it gets even more striking. The percentage of Irish women in prison was even higher again. So in 1862, 86% of the female prison population in New York were Irish women. So of almost 90% of the women's prison population in 1862 are Irish born. Give listeners a sense of, of how many women we're actually talking about there. So it's actually over 14,000 Irish women. So it's huge. It is huge. And the other thing about it, which is quite shocking, is that in New York, throughout the 1860s, Irish women actually outnumber Irish men in prison. So in 1862, there were just over 11,000 men. So there are 3,000 more women in prison. And this is really unusual as, yeah. as women tend to be fewer in crime statistics generally, both historically and today. So the fact that you've got this huge overrepresentation of Irish women in the New York criminal records is really striking. And it's the same story in Toronto. So in Toronto jail between 1859 and 1881, we know that at least 6,000 Irish women were admitted. Now, they're not 6,000 different Irish women because we know some of them are going in more than once. But in comparison, in the same period, there's around 1,200 English and Scottish women. So 1,200 compared to 6,000 Irish and around 1,800 Canadian born women. So even in Canada, where the prison is, you've got 1,800 Canadian women and at least 6,000 Irish women. <laughs> so Irish women make up more than 60% of the entire Toronto jail prison female population. And they outnumber every other nationality, including native born Canadian women combined. And what we found then is that Irish women in New York, in Boston, in Toronto, they're the largest ethnic group in prisons. And not only prisons, though, but workhouses, almshouses, asylums and other institutions as well. And there's lots of reasons um, why this is the case. So, so many are emigrating from Ireland in the mid-19th century. They're leaving behind really difficult, really challenging situations. Um, and to find out what life was like in Ireland for many women who emigrated, we're going to speak to an expert on the subject, Dr. Kira Brannock from the University of Limerick. Hi, Kira. Thanks so much for talking to us today. And I wonder if you could just paint for us a picture of what life would have been like for many women in mid to late 19th century Ireland prior to emigrating. The poverty that they were leaving at home, um, I think that 
urban and rural poverty differs greatly. Um, and rural Irish poverty is something that we probably don't speak about as much as we should. Um, there were several failed harvests in the late 19th century. Uh, farms were very small. They were subdivided. Tenancies, in fact, were very, very small. Um, so the ability for uh, families to become um, independent of, you know, um, and, and, and actually living in between that natural economy and the, the cash economy um, was something that was quite difficult for families to negotiate. So uh, to my mind, there's an enormous amount of pressure on these very young people um, to and, and and in in that pressure. Uh, they're neither here nor there. They're neither they're neither fully committed to their new host environment, and there is very much the def the, the the legacy of poverty in Ireland stays with them for a very long time, and because they're coming from such poverty, they're not really adjusting to urban life as quickly as they should either. So they're unprepared for life abroad. They're coming from poverty, but they're also bringing that legacy of poverty with them because there is enormous pressure on young people to send money back home. And they would have been leaving behind really quite poverty stricken circumstances in many cases. There were times as well that uh, in, in the West of Ireland in particular, in years of failed harvest, where you had the extremes of poverty, where there was actual starvation. And like we have the Great Famine in the mid 19th century, but there are several other um, smaller famines that occur throughout the late 19th century. The most notable ones being in the late 1870s. Um, there were three uh, failed harvests and those created absolute poverty stricken conditions. But there is always varying levels of relative and absolute poverty in the West of Ireland. And then, of course, we have secondary poverty, whereby cash incomes are spent um, unwisely on on things that we would consider superfluous to requirements like um, alcohol and uh, expenditure on tobacco. Um, and of course, that is hugely problematic as well. But again, it all comes back to um, the idea of living in between these these two different types of economies, the natural economy where you're self-sufficient and then this new um, capitalist um, uh, model. So that that's where... Um, Immigration becomes a really important, uh, I suppose, valve for these rural households. Um, and, and that is how these rural households actually survive um, for, for the most part of the late 19th century. And it, it, the pressure is on very young women in particular, these surplus daughters. Thanks, Gira. That gives us a real sense of the world they left. And one of the things, though, that makes Irish female emigration story unique is that so many women travelled alone. Um, and this was particularly unique in terms of European emigration, where most women who emigrated travelled with their families. But many young Irish women, you know, girls really, were travelling on their own. Their families expected them to get a job, to send money home. So these are these are really young women travelling with an awful lot of pressure on them. Because the families would very often have paid the cost of the ticket. It might have taken poorer families more time to cobble the money together. Maybe even neighbours contributed or charities or state institutions. And we know that workhouses and prisons and landlords and charities and individual men and women, religious and philanthropists, aided emigration. So the migrant must have, have kind of felt this 
this pressure, I suppose, to do well. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's hard for many of us to imagine this, but I suppose as well for many refugees and asylum seekers today, this is the reality too. It's leaving alone to try and make a better life elsewhere, maybe leaving one at a time to get settled, hopefully bringing others over family saving up to pay for travel. Yeah, and for, for young Irish women who might actually never have left their small village in Ireland before, the journey, like weeks at sea with strangers and arriving in a new city, it must have been so incredibly frightening and daunting. Absolutely. Can you imagine arriving at a huge and really busy port in a city like New York with all the sights and the sounds and the smells and how different it would have been from coming from this sort of tiny Irish village somewhere and you're exhausted after the journey, a long journey by sea. I mean, it, it genuinely must be absolutely terrifying. Yeah, and, and some women, they would have had a contact. So so say they might have been in touch with an employment agency, they might have a friend, a relative, um, an address for them. So, so for some women, absolutely it was okay and they were met at the port um, and they were brought to their new home. Yeah, and for others it wasn't quite so successful. You know, trying to find your way around the city and finding relatives would be difficult too. You don't have Google Maps to check where you're going. You don't have a a mobile phone to check where your relatives or friends were or could they meet you or for them to let you know if they're running late. And that's that's if you had someone to meet you. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose the other big problem um, for many new arrivals is is the address they might have could actually have been, might now be months out of date. So, so people moved all the time. So the address they had for someone when they got off the boat is not necessarily the place where they would be able to find their contact by the time they had actually arrived to the new world. And we do see... We've lots of examples of women who couldn't find relatives and friends and who end up destitute and, and homeless. Um, and, and in our next podcast on sex work, we'll talk about some of the fears about white slavery and about innocent Irish girls being seduced and tricked into sex work. And many of the women who, who might have arrived um, without money or, or without much money, maybe no contacts, no friends, they could end up living in, in pretty poor circumstances in the cities as well. Yeah. And what we do see are often different nationalities living together. So we find lots of Irish people often living in, in one place. Yeah. But I mean, that's pretty understandable. I suppose it's, it's familiar people, someone you might know, someone who might be able to help you get a place to live or, or people you feel comfortable and, and safe with. Um, of the same nationality, speak the same language, might help you out if you need it. Um, And I suppose that's something that we still see today. um, You know, groups of individuals living in close proximity for security, for familiarity, for support. Absolutely. Um, And we have some very vivid descriptions of areas in which many of the Irish lived in in our North American cities. Um, This is one from 1856, when a, a committee in New York commissioned was commissioned to investigate tenement houses, and they went with a police escort to a place called Derby's Patch in the Tenth Ward. Read for us here by the excellent Marty Maguire. The shanties are only one story high, have but a single room, and the occupants are all Irish. On one side of the street, a row of these huts is situated about eight feet below the curbstone, while the tide rises up to the very doors, and frequently, during a hard rain, the inmates are compelled to take to the beds and tables to keep clear from the water. But of all the colonies of squatters in Brooklyn, that at the foot of Columbia Street, called Tinkersville, 
is certainly entitled to the palm. A full view of this enchanting spot can be obtained from Hamilton Avenue as it stretches away upon a tongue of land into Gowanus Bay. The committee passed down its narrow and serpentine street and inhaled the savory smells puffed forth from the numerous pigsties and cattle stalls on either hand. This colony is much larger than either of the others described and is Irish throughout. The ground is said to be owned by F.B. Cutting Esquire of the city, but no rent is charged to those in possession. The cost of erecting a shanty is little or nothing, as the boards are generally stolen, and judging from the presence of a number of lazy-looking men lounging around, the squatters lead a comparatively indolent life. Tinkersville is located not much more than two or three feet above high watermark, and like Gowanus Beach, Derby's Patch, and similar localities, is in a most eligible position for an attack of the yellow fever. Well, it's, it's really strong stuff. This is kind of references to yellow fever as if the Irish are bringing disease with them and, and mentioning several times that these are all Irish people who are lazy and, and live in squalor. Yeah, and this would have been fairly common in the middle of the 19th yeah. century. This sort of comment where we see charity workers, government officials often writing about the Irish as dirty and lazy and badly behaved. Um, and cartoon images of the Irish in, in publications the Irish were often drawn as, as primitive, as ape-like. The, the men were, were stupid and drunk. The women were unfeminine. They were aggressive. I suppose that, like, there is uh, a reality in the stereotyping where many of the Irish were living in, in poverty. We're living in these kind of poverty-stricken circumstances. Um, yeah, they absolutely were. And, and there are some similarities today in the way that migrants are spoken about. But it's also clear that, like the Irish 150 years ago, who dominated police and prison statistics, similar situations with other groups occur in the US today. And to find out a bit more about all these issues, we're going to speak to Catherine Griffin, who's a brilliant public defender in New York City. Sadly, there are many similarities between the high numbers of Irish arrested and imprisoned in the 19th century and the startling number of men and women of colour in the criminal justice and prison system in America today. Men and women of colour dominate prison and police statistics. African American and Hispanic men and women represent 32% of the US population, but they make up 56% of the US prison population. There are also well-established demographic differences in sentencing, with men of colour continuing to receive longer sentences than similarly situated white male offenders. In preparing to talk to you today, I also decided to take a look at statistics when it comes to summonses. Summonses are the lowest level of offence. They are tickets issued for non-criminal quality-of-life offences like drinking in public, urinating in public or littering. Similar, it would seem, to some of the offences Irish immigrants in the 19th century were charged with. In the first quarter of 2020, the New York Police Department issued just under 12,000 summonses to individuals. Only 981 of these summonses were issued to people who were white. I find that to be a truly shocking statistic. 
people of color are not committing these infractions at 11 times the rate of white people. They are being policed more. There are certainly similar factors at play today to those facing Irish immigrants in the 19th century. One of the largest factors driving crime in New York City is a lack of affordable housing. The majority of arrests occur in neighborhoods where social services, educational, and health resources are lacking. What is truly disheartening is that the prejudice that faced our ancestors still faces different ethnic groups today. You have laid out the fact that Irish immigrants in the 19th century were thought of as immoral, drunken, and violent. Today in America, men and women of color face similar stereotypes and prejudices. As a result, men and women of color all too often face not just arrest, but police violence. Oscar Grant, George Floyd, Eric Garner, Akai Gurley, all too often, I've seen a white client walk into court in a suit and be addressed by court staff based on the assumption that they are a lawyer. But when a lawyer of color appears in a suit, they are often first addressed based on the assumption that they are a client. Systematic racism is real. Police reform, criminal justice reform, must address racism at its roots if it is ever to change. Unfortunately, its roots are centuries deep. Centuries deep indeed. Thank you very much for your insight, Catherine, and for drawing attention to systemic racism. And Leanne, I think Catherine has really shown us how how discrimination really permeates the judicial system um, in perceptions based on appearance, as she talked about, or um, on somebody's address or their behaviour, um, and how this can, this then has results. So from the low-level summons that Catherine mentioned to, the, to the, the convictions that result in prison sentences. And in the 21st century, it's clear that men and women of colour are facing prejudices and discrimination. And of course, racism was also evident in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Absolutely. And, and although our migrants are white, we do sometimes see evidence of their, their racism um, towards men and women of colour in the US or, or sometimes um, racist attitudes towards Irish women who married or courted uh, men of colour. So both in our 19th century records and also today, we can see some of the same issues. Similar reasons why people ended up before a judge and the role that discrimination could play in that. It really was a tough picture for many of those Irish women then who arrived in North America. Many had left behind poverty, famine, life in very rural Ireland to be faced with similar issues but in a new place and, and without often the support networks that they might have had at home. Yeah, so being on their own without a wider support network, it means that if things go wrong, there's no one to kind of step up or help them out. When they're arrested, they might not necessarily have someone to bail them out. There's no one perhaps to advise against taking a job or, or to support them against against an employer who was maybe not treating them well, who wouldn't pay, um, or maybe somewhere where they were being harassed or abused. And and I suppose many of the contacts um or friends, so even those who who, who did have have contacts or friends, you know, they're they're not necessarily rich enough themselves to be able to to give all that much support. So they might be able to offer a bed on the floor, but but maybe um for some of our Irish immigrants what we see is is that 
their friends and relatives are not really able to offer all that much else. Absolutely. And and of course, not to say that, that this was the situation for everybody. There are many women that we know who, who emigrated, who found jobs, who, who maybe had somebody to meet them and who were able to send money back home, um, which, as we said, was something that was really expected of women in particular. And and between 1848 and 1900, about $260 million were sent back by Irish migrants back to Ireland. So this is a really important funding stream really for for people back at home. Yeah, and for many others then things didn't work out. So it's it's kind of complexities to this Irish female migration story. It was hard to make that money Um, and we're going to hear more about those women um, throughout the next four podcasts. Yeah, thanks for listening to this one and please join us next time when we'll be talking about women who worked as prostitutes, who ran brothels and those who tried to protect women from being tricked into a life of sin. And your absolute favourite bad Bridget, Leanne. Yeah, she will be everyone's favourite bad Bridget by the end of the next (laughs) podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe. And if you would like to give us a five star rating, it helps other people find us. This Bad Bridget podcast was funded by Queen's University Belfast and Ulster University. Written and presented by Leanne McCormick and Elaine Farrell. Edited and produced by Colm Heatley at Queen's University Belfast. Consultation provided by Alan Hall. And with special thanks to Siobhan McSweeney, Marty Maguire, Kira Vranach and Catherine Griffin. Original artwork by Ashley Neal, PhD Cartoon. Original music by Francisca Schroeder and Katrina Gribben. And additional post-production provided by John Darcy. <laughs>